the specific topic in your notebooks is God's Design for Marriage and Sexuality, Part 2. We began Part 1 last week, and uh, one uh, statement reflecting back on last week, for those of you that were here, we looked at uh, God's design uh, specifically for uh, men and women and, and various roles uh, in which God has created us and the way that He has created us differently. I want to say this. I want to say, uh, I believe that is God's ideal. That is God's design. That is God's ideal in the home for a husband to be a loving leader in the home uh, and to provide leadership in that way for his family. Now, that is certainly an ideal that is often not realized within our homes and the majority of homes in this world. And so keep that in mind because this is meant to be a picture of something far greater. And we said last week, that's a picture of the gospel. And so if that is not true of, of your home situation, and uh, if it's not, then, then you're certainly uh, with the majority on that. Uh, but know that it's a picture of something far greater, something far better that will one day be fully realized and has already begun to, to play out in God's love for His people the church, uh, and the sacrifice of our groom, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's jump right in. We've got a good bit of ground to cover tonight uh, in part two of this same series. I want to begin with just a reminder, repeating a, a statement that I made last week, and that's your understanding of gender and marriage informs how you approach dating, relationships, singleness, parenting, divorce, sexuality, and sexual immorality. And I believe that our understanding of these issues, of of how God has created us and the way that He's created us, the way that He desires for us to relate to one another, particularly in marriage, uh, informs much more than just the marriage relationship. It informs all of our family relationships. The way we live life... uh, Wherever we are uh, on that spectrum, there's certainly some that, uh, that, that will never be married, and that's God's design for them. Uh, there are others that uh, perhaps are widowed or divorced or uh, have unbelieving spouses, and uh, all of this uh, informs all of, the, all of our relationships, specifically our family relationships, even beyond just our marriage relationships. So I say that to say it's applicable to all of us, I believe. So why is knowing God's design for marriage such a big deal? Why is knowing God's design for marriage such a big deal? I'm going to give you three reasons. And before I do, I noticed in the song that the youth choir just sang, they, I'm trying to read my scribble here, For your glory I was made, let my life, O Lord, praise you. And we would say that's true uh, about all people. We've been created for the glory of God and the response for us, especially as the people of God, ought to be to try to live lives that are pleasing to God, that are devoted to God, that, that glorify God, which we just sang about. And the same thing is true, not just of us individually. And we looked at that last week, how we're created in the image of God and to reflect certain things about God. But the same thing is true of marriage. The purpose of marriage is to bring glory to God. The purpose of marriage is to bring glory to 
to God. It's, it's his design. He came up with this thing. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, for the, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Chapter 2 of Genesis, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22, He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Again, emphasizing this is God's design. Mark chapter 10 Beginning in verse 6, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So the purpose of marriage is to bring glory to God. However, marriage is certainly not required to bring glory to God. Marriage is not required to bring glory to God. Paul wrote, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as... As God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you of this. (laughs) What? (laughs) I didn't say that. Scripture. So, whatever the case, if you are married, you should strive to bring glory to God in your marriage. If you are single, you should strive to bring glory to God in your singleness. That's the task for all of us as people created by God, in the image of God, to to glorify God. Our task is to bring glory to God in whatever situation we find ourselves, in whatever relationships we find ourselves. We also see that your marriage will depend on what you do with the grace of God. Your marriage will depend on what you do with the grace of God. Marriage is hard. You know this if you're married, if you've ever been married. Marriage is hard. Why? Because two different people are trying to do life together. All of life together. For a quick break, we are going to watch a short video clip uh, that gives us a testimony of that truth. uh, And then we will continue. So direct your attention to the screens. Little things are really what I think got to us initially when we first were living together. I'll be getting ready in the morning and I'll hear this. Allison, it's an emergency. It's an emergency. And then I have to let him in the bathroom. Then he goes to the bathroom and it's like this. And then I have to go in there and finish getting ready and it's horrible. 
and I'm sick of my stomach and I'm gagging. And I cannot stand that. The other part that was really hard was that I liked things really neat and orderly coming out of the military and she would pretty much just throw her stuff wherever she felt like and just leave it a mess. Well, he says that I was spoiled <laughs> growing up, but I like to say that I was nurtured. He'll say, it's okay to put dishes in the dishwasher. It's okay when you're finished with a towel to hang it back up on the rack. And I think it's okay to leave it on the floor. And it's not something to totally stress out about. As far as she's concerned, that was my military life, and now she's trying to deprogram me. We have very different interests. She likes to go to museums and look at art and do artsy type things. He likes to go to the shooting range and shotguns. She'll, you know, take me to these different things, you know, trying to broaden my insights and, you know, give me culture, but I don't care. I've said that I'm going to take a shooting class with him. I will attend some of the different plays and stuff that she wants to really see. And he has agreed to take swing dance lessons at some point. I feel that I've, I've changed more to fit into her life than she's changed to try to fit into life I would like. So there you have it, a real life testimony to marriage. And, and many of you, I dare say maybe all of you that are married can relate to those sorts of things. I can't. I mean, my marriage is perfect. I don't know what they're talking about. But that was just... Um, uh, uh, an illustration uh, for the rest of you. I'm just kidding about that. Certainly uh, not perfect because I'm not perfect. Um, but, but marriage is difficult because two separate people, different people with varying interests and very, varying personalities are doing life together. Uh, and, and to complicate matters, we know that all of us are sinful. All of us are prideful and selfish at the core. And this affects all of our relationships, not least of the relationship that is most dear to us and the one that we're most invested in. So two different people are trying to do life together. Kind of gave away the next one. Two sinners trying to live life together. Romans chapter 3, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. Deep sinners who have turned away from God. Not a pretty picture there in Romans chapter 3. But the good news for us as believers... Those who have trusted in Christ for salvation, we have new life in Christ. We have new life in Christ. This is something that sets us apart from unbelievers in the world. I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, your way of life before Christ, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. And have put on the new self, 
which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So we have new life in Christ. And because that's the case, the Spirit of God dwells in us. The Spirit of God dwells in you. If, if you know God through Christ, if you've been reconciled to God through Christ, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you. Romans chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. And in Him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. That's something that gives us a distinct advantage in our relationships certainly in our marriages, in this world, as believers, that the Spirit of God is living in us as His people. A reminder here, another reminder, when we embrace God's design for marriage, we display Christ's love for the church. When we embrace God's design for marriage, we display Christ's love for church. For the church. And this is what we got at last week that, that our faithful marriages and, and our faithfulness to our spouses, as, as God intends, is an ultimate picture of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ provides the ultimate picture for marriage, the ultimate example for us to look to in our marriages. Isaiah chapter 54, beginning in verse 5 For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back. As if you, were, as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young, only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandon you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ provides the ultimate picture our marriage and the way that God has treated us is the way that we in turn ought to treat our family members, particularly our spouses. God is a God of covenants. God is a God of covenants. That's a picture of of Scripture and we read about covenants over and over and over again in Scripture. I'm going to quickly read just a few of these, not all of these that are listed in your notes, but a covenant is different, and, and Tim Keller says this very well. I referenced him, I think, a couple weeks ago as a pastor in uh, New York City area. But he says this very well, makes this uh, very good distinction between a covenant relationship and a uh, consumer relationship. And in, in a consumer relationship, uh, especially with, say, in a business deal, with a vendor the vendor adjusts to you. Even if you have a relationship with him, even if you've got a history of buying from a particular vendor, the vendor adjusts to you. But your needs, at the end of the day, 
to make money, to, to get the best deal, are ultimately more important than your relationship with the vendor. The vendor adjusts to you, but if you don't get the best deal, then you are perhaps going to break off the relationship and find uh, a new vendor. But a covenant is different. A covenant creates relationship. And in a covenant, the relationship is more important than your needs or your feelings. That's the difference between a covenant and a consumer-based relationship. The picture, and we'll get to this, is that marriage is a covenant. It's, it's not, a, not a contract that, that is periodically renewed. It's not a one-year deal. It's a covenant. It's a, a merging of lives together for the purpose of relationship that's glorifying to God. But God is a God of covenants. There are a number of biblical covenants that we can trace through Scripture. The Edenic covenant is the covenant in Genesis chapter 2 with, with Adam in the garden. I'm going to read the first two or three of these just because they're all kind of right here together in Genesis. But Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Next, the the covenant with Noah. I'll let you pronounce that one how you want to. Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. Actually, back up to verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. God's promise to Noah and the descendants of Noah, that he would never again flood the earth in the way that he did at that time. A promise that, that when he made it to, to Noah, Noah knew because of who God is that this was going to take place, that this would be a, a covenant, a promise that would last forever. Next you have the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. A promise that we know was ultimately fulfilled in, in Christ. All nations of the earth would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. Also the Mosaic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then finally the the New Covenant. The New Covenant. I'm going to read the Scripture reference listed there from Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9. 
beginning in verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So lastly, the new covenant, the covenant that, that all Christians are a part of, an eternal relationship with God, forgiveness of sins and restoration with our creator through the sacrifice of Christ and our faith response to that. So God is a God of covenants. We see that very clearly in Scripture. And God is always faithful to His covenants. God is always faithful to His covenants. Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol Him, all you peoples. For great is His love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Romans chapter 3, verse 3. What if some were unfaithful. Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. God is always faithful to His covenants. When you realize the gravity of your sin against a holy God and trust in Jesus for your forgiveness and salvation, God enters into covenant with you. That's the idea of the new covenant with all of those who recognize their sin and repent before a holy God and trust in Jesus for forgiveness enter into covenant with God and that means that that God is committed to a relationship with you God is a God of covenants he's a God who's always faithful to his covenants and those that trust in Christ for salvation have entered into covenant with a God who always keeps his end of the covenant. He's always faithful to his people. What a beautiful picture. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15. Now because God is always faithful to his covenants. He expects us. To be faithful to our covenants. Because God is always faithful to his covenants. He expects us to be faithful to our covenants. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman before God. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman, according to scripture, before God. Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. The Lord, the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. 
No other human relationship can have the intimacy of marriage. No other human relationship can have the intimacy of marriage. There's emotional intimacy in marriage. You're committed to doing life together with someone else. Sharing life together through the highs and the lows, the ups and the downs. Experiencing life together. Emotional intimacy, spiritual intimacy as well. Spiritual intimacy as well as you... Hopefully, two believers growing together in their walk with Christ, growing together in their relationship with the Lord. And also, thirdly, physical intimacy. Physical intimacy. Any kids in here? Okay, good. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. If there are, that's okay. I mean, you're the parent. You can... Deal with that how you want to. But but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. For she was taken out of a man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and Eve, uh, Adam and his wife, were both naked, and they felt no shame. Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 through 25. So physical intimacy. Two reasons. For procreation, certainly. I think that one's obvious. For procreation. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. And secondly, for enjoyment. For procreation and for enjoyment. I'm going to read some from Song of Solomon, scripture here. And if it sounds, I'm I'm not going to make a lot of comments on this, but I will say this. If it sounds uh, a bit scandalous, it probably is. But it is the word of God. And so we're going to look at it uh, together this evening. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinir, the, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's den and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and, and the fragrance of your, perf- of your perfume more than any spice. 
Verse 11, your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are on orchard, or are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Awake, north wind, and come south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh and my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. Song of Solomon, chapter 4 through chapter 5, verse 1. Anybody blushing yet? End of the same book, chapter 8, verse 14. This ends with, with the bride saying to her husband, Come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle, or like a young stag on the spice laden mountains. And so the picture is the last verse of the book. The book ends with the physical enjoyment of a husband and wife for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 beginning in verse 2. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So intimacy in marriage. We see emotional intimacy, spiritual intimacy, and physical intimacy. All of which God designed to take place in the marriage relationship, a type of intimacy that cannot be found in any other relationship, in any other way. Tim Keller says that sex is not designed to be a consumer good, but is a covenant good. Not designed to be a consumer good, and that's certainly what our society would like us to believe. Find it where you can get it, but it's a covenant good. A good is to be found in the marriage covenant alone and to be satisfied in the marriage covenant alone. And this kind of intimacy is only designed for marriage. This type of intimacy and vulnerability is only designed for marriage. The physical act of intimacy is a sign of what a a married couple has already done with every other part of their lives. Given everything to each other. They're vulnerable for each other with life. And this is only another avenue, another expression of what has already taken place in every other area of life. 
And you have some verses here again from Song of Solomon. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. I want to say just a word about that because that's a refrain that's repeated several times in Song of Solomon. And what's being communicated here is that though this couple is already in love with each other, they already desire to be together in every way, physically, they're to wait until the proper time to consummate the marriage. And so that's what's being communicated here. Wait. Do not awaken this type of love until the proper time, until the marriage relationship, until it's time to consummate the marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Galatians chapter 5 verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we've seen this picture of intimacy that is only to be found in the marriage covenant. All of which is God's design. We're certainly to be faithful to our covenants that we make because God is a faithful God faithful to his covenants. And he calls his people to be faithful to those covenants. Adultery then is breaking the marriage covenant. Adultery is breaking the marriage covenant. This is sexual relations that are in addition to the marriage relationship. Exodus chapter 20, Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. Matthew chapter 15, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. So adultery is breaking the marriage covenant. Divorce is breaking the marriage covenant. Divorce is breaking the marriage covenant. Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against, you have dealt, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Specifically talking in the context of people, men of God, who are not treating their wives faithfully. Matthew chapter 19, verse 18. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So adultery and divorce breaking the marriage covenant. Fornication, then, is corrupting the privileges of marriage. Fornication is corrupting the privileges of marriage. And how so? It's treating something that God has designed for a particular relationship, a particular covenant relationship, treating it as common, profaning it, treating it as ordinary, the opposite of holy, which is what we do when we don't recognize the holiness of the God that we serve. He's holy, He's set apart, and when we treat him as, as common, it's profaning him. The same thing when we engage in sexual relations prior to or outside of marriage. Fornication, corrupting the privileges of marriage. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Words of Christ found in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it is God's will that you, that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. So fornication, corrupting the privileges of marriage. And then finally, homosexuality is perverting God's design for marriage. Homosexuality is perverting God's design for marriage, perverting the biblical picture of marriage. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. A couple other passages of Scripture that I want to mention regarding homosexuality as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. One other reference that we won't read tonight, but 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Another one that mentions homosexuality uh, along with various other sins. Remember the picture. Remember the picture. When we embrace God's design for marriage, we display Christ's love for the church. When we embrace God's design for marriage, we display Christ's love for the church. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. By being faithful to God's design for marriage, we participate in the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By being faithful to God's design for marriage, we participate in the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We certainly, and that's where we're going to conclude tonight in our notes, we certainly, and I want to reemphasize as I did in our first session together that Throughout this study, we want to listen to the Word of God and we want to lean heavily on the grace of God. Because the truth is, all of us, in some way or another, have fallen short of God's picture of marriage. Of God's ideal picture of marriage as was a picture before the world of the relationship between Christ and His church. And so we approach these things knowing that God is a God of grace and compassion and mercy and restoration and healing and forgiveness. And we praise God that that is the God that we serve. 
And we also praise God that God is God who is always faithful to his covenants. And it's his faithfulness that ought to spark us to desire to be obedient, to be faithful in all that we do, in all our relationships, all for the glory of God. Amen? Well, let's conclude our time tonight in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy day by day. Lord, we, we do pray that you would reveal any unconfessed sin in our lives to each of us personally, individually, tonight, Lord, that we might be found faithful as your people, confessing our sin before you, knowing that you are a God who promises to forgive. Lord, we thank you that when you entered into covenant with each of us through Jesus Christ, it was an everlasting covenant. And that you are committed to that relationship with each of us. Lord, may we in turn be committed to our walk with you and obedience to you first and foremost. Lord, may that relationship with you overflow into our relationships with our spouses and our family members and our children and our grandchildren and our parents and our grandparents and our friends and our neighbors, all for the glory of God. Lord, may you continue to lead us tonight as we leave this place that we would be found faithful as you are a faithful God. We love you and it's in Christ that we pray. Amen. You are just